Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are our hosts. Oh, wait, we are your hosts, not here are our hosts, uh, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. And today we have a guest introducer. Um, Thanks Welcome. to summer break. Yay, summer break. <laughs> Welcome, Mira Trackman. Um, Mira, thank you for, for reading our title. Okay. So we have a very exciting episode today. Can you tell me, what do you think of lawyers? Well, lawyers are good people because they help. They just help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. I like the positive thinking. What about babies? Yeah. Do you like babies? Well, I like babies because if we didn't have any babies... It would be no one living. Oh, that's a good point. Very yeah. good point, yes. Um, and so just a real quick, uh, some info about you. Mira, how old are you? I'm nine. And are you in school right now? No. No, why? Because it's summer. Because it's summer. Summer. It's- that happens to all of us, yes. Well, thank you so much for remembering, reminding us how important lawyers and babies are. Which, you know, that leads us right into our interview, right? Because we have really important (laughs) lawyers who help us or help other people, especially when they've had some major difficulties in growing their families. So we are really excited to have Colleen Quinn with us today. Welcome, Colleen Quinn from Locke and Quinn. Colleen is another attorney, so I'm always excited to have attorneys on, but Colleen is um, incredibly experienced. She runs the Adoption and Surrogacy Center at Locke and Quinn. And Colleen... Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Do you want to start by giving a background of your your journey to practicing this area of law? Sure. So um, everybody tends to be touched in one way or another by family formation. And um, actually, it's about one in three of us are touched by adoption. And so I was actually in law school when my sister called me and she told me that she had just uh, had a baby, which nobody in the family really knew about, but she was living at home and she caught the baby. She'd gone to, she she was feeling, you know, uh, basically some pain down below and some pressure. And so she went to the college clinic bathroom and she literally caught the baby in her hand. So she didn't know she was pregnant. Well, she, or she didn't tell people she was pregnant. Is that right? True? So you, you okay. run into this issue, and I've actually seen it in my in my adoption practices of uh, folks will just women will just kind of deny the fact that they have to deal right. with it. You know, wow. so that was my my first um, introduction to the area of adoption uh, because she basically was, you know, not in a position to to parent, and so that was my first exposure. And then after I came out of law school, I met this wonderful local attorney in Richmond, Virginia, Rodney Poole, who uh, basically kind of put me under his wing and said, I'd like for you to uh, represent uh, placing parents. And that was perfect because of my experience with my sister. Mm-hmm. And so I actually represented, uh, Rodney adopted two children. I represented the birth mom and his adoptions. Oh. And then he was instrumental in getting me into what was the American Academy of Adoption Attorneys and that is now the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys, which two years ago I was fortunate enough to be president of while we merged the adoption and the assisted reproductive technology sections together. 
um, which Ellen, you're familiar with. Yes. And so uh, anyway, that was that was a fun so that we kind of now have one one academy that covers the whole area of family formation, especially since so many of us were doing uh, both adoption and assisted reproductive technologies. When you were in law school, did you think this would be an area you'd practice or did your sister's experience really kind of change your trajectory? I really hadn't given it much thought when I had my sister's <laughs> experience. Yeah. But then but then after I got out of law school, I was actually doing insurance defense and that law firm fell apart. It it separated and the insurance work went with the other half, <laughs> not where I was. Uh, so yeah. so really whatever walked in the door I did and I I started mm. doing a little bit of family law and then that's when I, I met Rodney and I, I was kind of like, you know, this is an area that in the back of my head I've always thought would be really interesting. Yeah, right. And so from there it just, it took off. And then when I actually went to leave that law firm and go to a a new law firm, I said, look, I've started this little area of family formation. Can I bring it with me to the new law firm where I was going to do employment law and insurance defense? And they're like, sure. And so from then, from there, it just, you know, and I, I built it up. And then when that law firm kind of implode it. And I was oh, no. looking for, I know, for this bad history. It's not you. It's not you. No, it's, 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 um, and so when that law firm, uh, imploded and I had, I had built this women's injury law center cause I do this other side of the practice, personal injury, med malemployment. But then I had built this adoption and surrogacy law center and the personal injury med mal guys, they said, well, you can come with us if you drop that adoption and surrogacy practice you're doing. And I'm like, oh, heck no. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Oh, that's like, no. that's fun. That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's the practice where we get the Christmas cards and the birth announcements oh, and the pictures right. of the babies, you know, and it's like, no way. And so I'm driving down the street literally and I see another law firm and there's a, a, a attorney I know in that firm and it says personal injury and family law attorneys. And I'm like, and they rolled out the red carpet because it was like I had a women's injury law center that fit on their personal injury side. I had an adoption surrogacy law center that fit on their family law side. But they did traditional, you know, divorce support, equitable distribution. I call that the yucky side of family law. We do, we do the happy side. <laughs> That's, I feel the but, same way too, like happy law that, no, we're under family law frequently, like with the ABA. But, you know, it's it's happy. It's growing the families, not when they fall apart. Right. 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 We get to do the happy stuff and the putting things together and making babies. Right. Exactly. Well, that is, that's exciting to hear how you came from it. Cause it's true that everyone kind of has a personal story that brings them to this area. It's not like in law school, they're like, Hey, do you want to do corporate or do you want to do assisted reproductive technology? Right. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and I have twins and they were natural. Um, so I didn't have to uh, go through any fertility treatment. But having had the twins and, you know, we have these issues of do you transfer one embryo? Do you transfer more than one embryo? Having, you know, busted 200 pounds and become toxemic and you oh, know, having wow. the twins prematurely, I can, I can explain to clients, look at this, this concept of, especially when you have your, your gay guys and they want to have one embryo uh, that was formed from each of their sperm and they want to have one each transferred. And, and so you can explain to them, do you, realize the risk um, and the competition in the womb and the the risk to your carrier, et cetera. So we all have some personal aspect that we can bring to this family formation world. Right. 
Well, and speaking of um, gay dads, you actually were on a case that I used to to frighten people. <laughs> not, not necessarily intentionally. Yeah. Well, that's a nice way to no, put it. Yeah. Not necessarily to use it, but there. I mean, one of the more frightening cases out there is a case that you worked on. Do you want to tell us about this case of the yes. dads were in Virginia, but gestational carrier was in Wisconsin? Okay. Right. Take it from so, there. So the dads are, are very public about this. They've gone extremely public, and I have clear permission to use their names, um, Rick Olson and Jay Timmons. Um, they, if you go on Facebook, they've blogged all about their experience. So they had an embryo donated to them, and I did the embryo donation agreement for them. Then they, uh, they didn't want to find a carrier in Virginia because at the time our surrogacy statute said intended mother, intended father. Um, and we, we worked together to change that statute effective July 1, um, which is uh, kind of at the end of the story. So anyway, Jay and Rick, they decide we're going to pick uh, a carrier in Wisconsin. They found a carrier that they really liked. And then working with another academy uh, attorney, Lynn Bodie, they were able to get a, it wasn't really a pre-birth order, but it was a, a kind of a pre-declaration order from a judge in Wisconsin uh, saying that uh, after the birth, these guys will be uh, the, the parents of, of the child. And so there, they that judge, that preliminary judge was replaced by another judge who I call like the, the homophobic judge from hell. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Because when they went back to get a, the backup order, that judge um, appointed a, a guardian ad litem for the child, uh, Jacob, um, born from the donated embryo to the Wisconsin carrier. And that judge appointed a guardian ad litem who was the homophobic guardian ad litem from hell. Well, and and, and I'd say just to, to yeah. be clear, because so many people go through all of this process and stuff like that, I just want to make sure that people understand that like, they went through all the steps correctly. Like, They had a gestational carrier agreement. They went right. through a fertility clinic. They did, they did everything right. right. Is what, right. Yeah, right. I just want to make right. sure everybody knows that, yeah. that this is not like one of those stories, like it's a Craigslist meeting and all that stuff. That Even in this case, they did it right. And I'm, am I wrong? They already had children. And, and did they had they gone through Wisconsin before? No, they had gone through California for their okay. two girls. Okay. So they had two girls also, um, uh, and those were from embryos that they created. And then because they had this embryo gifted to them, who later became Jacob, um, they you know decided, well, we're going to go ahead and do this again. Mm-hmm. I'd never worked with Wisconsin before, you know, and there's no statute in Wisconsin, so it's right. all done by case law. And they just happened to get a very anti-gay judge. And as far um, as we know, before this, you know, surrogacy was going smoothly in Wisconsin, right? They they had no red right. flags to know that they would get this outlier judge that was not, was very against them in this. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So what um, happened? So basically, um, the judge writes this horrific opinion about how they are engaged in human trafficking. Um, And the guardian ad litem did all this research, uh, ran up his bill um, considerably, uh, did all this research as to uh, why this whole arrangement um, was not legal, um, why the court shouldn't recognize it, et cetera. And so... uh, Basically, and what did he propose that they do with the child? I mean, since the guardian ad litem is supposed to be on the side of the child, what was he proposing was in the best interest of the child then? It, 
wasn't really proposing that the child go to any other custodian, um, but wasn't in favor of the dads being declared to be the legal dads either. That they would still raise the child, but have no rights to the child? No one would have rights to the child? Um, that was the general gist of it. Um, you know, so yeah, it was just really um, not um, not supporting the judge eventually declaring legal parentage for these guys. Yeah. And so, um, and, and there was some threat that the, that this rogue judge was suggesting that the child be taken from them. Um, so it's, uh, you know, they, they basically ended up spending um, about $400,000 to go through this lengthy litigation. I saw that. I saw that the guardian ad litem was another six figures, 100,000 plus. Yes. Right? It was like 140 wow. grand. Um, and the last I spoke to the guys, you know, they were still, they were still trying to work out the guardian ad litem um, bill. They actually um, sued, countersued like the guardian ad litem. Um, and, uh, and basically, were asking to get their money back that they had had to pay to the guardian ad litem. Yeah. Um, so, that's, so that's happening now or that's still happening? It's in process. Yeah. Um, and you know, as part of it, they were trying to ask for um, uh, an apology or that the guardian ad litem come back uh, out with some sort of retraction or statement, et cetera. So I don't know what the status is of trying to work out that settlement, but they were in the process and hopeful that they would be able to get things worked out and also possibly get some of their money back. That's good. So that, yeah. so that shows that there is, they got to a happy ending ish. So they ultimately, um, so that judge <laughs> actually got removed. It was, I don't know if the judge was removed from the bench or resigned. I think the judge resigned. I already resigned to run for office. I, I think that's something I read. I don't know if that's true, but. Uh, he did. He actually tried to run for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme court. Yeah. So, which was unsuccessful. Um, and of course the guys are fighting this with going completely public with their story. So it got picked up in a lot of the news media. And so eventually the the judge that replaced the homophobic judge, um, went ahead and, you know, finally gave them their uh, legal parentage of Jacob so that the parentage was secure. And, but then the guys were, they live up in Northern Virginia and they live in the same neighborhood as uh, Richard, we call him Rip Sullivan. So Delegate Sullivan um, contacted me um, uh, last year and said, you know, hey, Jay and Rick really would like to help change Virginia's assistant reproductive technology statute. And we were doing gestational carrier agreements in Virginia for gay dads outside of our statute because our statute had this repugnant language of saying that intended parents had to be a man and a woman and uh, a married man and woman. Um, but we were basically doing the arrangements and just saying there's nothing in Virginia that says you can't do them outside of the statute. And we were using our Parentage Act in conjunction with our birth certificate um, statutes to, to do the contracts. But it would be, you know, it was, it was a nice idea. But the main goal for Rick and Jay was that they wanted our statute to change for folks to be able to use a donated embryo and not have a genetic connection to the child, but still be declared the parents. So, yeah, so they wanted um, uh, 
basically four things to happen to the statute, four things we did. One was we made it so that it was gender neutral and it applied to, you know, intended parent, intended parent, um, so that it, it clearly applied to gay parents. Two, a, a single intended parent uh, could be a carrier, I mean, excuse me, could be a parent. Um, we, are, we already, the statute already allowed for a single carrier, but it didn't allow for a single intended parent. It, it required married intended parents. Um, again, we were doing single parents outside of the statute, but it, you know, it's nice to have the statute actually say that in Virginia, right, right. yes, a single parent could do it. Right. right. The, so the third thing it did was it allowed for a donor embryo to be used. And as long as we could show that the embryo was legally owned by the single intended parent or the married intended parents, then they would be declared the parents um, upon birth. And then the fourth thing is it made it clearer that the only type of carrier that could um, void the contract is a true surrogate or a traditional surrogate. That is one that's genetically connected to the child. So those Which were, would never, if it was an embryo donation and it's not her genetics, that would not be an option. Right, right. And so those, those were the four basic changes that we were making to Virginia's um, statute. And the guys, so, you know, we in Virginia, like in many states, still have um, a super tug of war when it comes to getting yeah. anything passed. And right. so we have um, in our uh, General Assembly, we just have a slight Republican majority in the, the Senate. And so uh, trying to get this through, the guys, uh, they were, they're both Republican, um, uh, Jay and Rick are. And so they also, they dubbed this Jacob's Law and approached it as yeah. kind of a right to life um, package. And oh. we we made the leg, our, our legislature, our General Assembly, aware of you know the approximately one million embryos that currently are frozen and in storage in the United States. And we don't have exact numbers; it's so hard to get a hold of exact numbers. But right now, it, uh, one million is a pretty conservative estimate of you know the number of embryos that are in the United States alone that are frozen. And so it got packaged as this: if we allow for the use of these embryos, then we will bring more of these embryos to life rather than them just staying in storage indefinitely. And because they had that, they had Jacob, that embryo donated to them. And they actually brought Jacob and their two girls to all of the, oh, all of the um, hearings, which how, was. How old was Jacob? By the, I, I mean, I kind of to backtrack. How old was Jacob by the time they finally secured rights? Jacob, I'm trying to think of Jacob's Let's see. Jacob was born in 2015, August 2015. So is he three and a half? It's about three and a half. Yeah. But my understanding is from the Wisconsin case, like it was close to a year with that judge fighting them, right? Yes. I think it was, which is really scary that if the judge hadn't resigned, that who knows how, how long that would have gone or how it would have turned out, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that was... Um, quite a, a venture, quite a journey for them. Um, and, you know, it was kind of surprising because to also the attorneys in Wisconsin, because, um, you know, the Wisconsin attorneys have been oper operating a surrogacy program in Wisconsin without any hiccups up until this case. Yeah. Which is why when I work, so I work in New Mexico too, where there is no law. <laughs> and I have to mm -hmm. point out that we, you know, we don't, we don't know what a judge might do. And there is this case and that, that could happen again. Right. 
we had actually started adoption proceedings in Virginia for Jacob um, because at the time, um, at the time, because neither the, neither one of the guys was uh, genetically related to Jacob, I couldn't use our Parentage Act. Um, usually I could use our Parentage Act and through DNA testing show that at least one dad was the genetic dad. And then through our step-parent adoption laws, I could get the other dad as the other legal dad. Um, but because neither was genetically related, we started the adoption proceedings in Virginia. And as that was progressing to secure the legal parentage for them of Jacob in Virginia, that's when the judge in Wisconsin resigned and they got the new judge who went ahead and, and entered the, the order there. Who, securing who would their- have relinquished parental rights in Virginia? The surrogate, right? Because, um, I mean, at that point, it's like such a, a mucky issue, right? right. Well, it was, yeah. it, it was their Okay. Yeah, the gestational carrier and her husband were the ones that were going to be consenting to their okay. adoption. And it, it was actually part of uh, having to start the adoption proceedings. I think that was so repugnant to the guys that really pushed them to contact Delegate Sullivan and say, hey, folks shouldn't have to do an adoption if they have a donated embryo in Virginia. Um, so let's change the statute. What was The other thing that was interesting about that whole process is that the concept of ownership of an embryo was somewhat repugnant to a lot of the legislators. So basically, um, they they used the term uh, legal custody. Yeah, and which I didn't really like because <laughs> you know, right? It's like if now is it we're taking in the best interest for this embryo right. for you to have custody of this embryo? <laughs> right, and and we have two cases in Virginia that that make it pretty clear that an embryo that embryos are property. Um, and so here you're taking custody of property. So we worked on the definition of legal custody to make it clear that it was ownership, that you had to show ownership of the embryo. Um, but in order to get the statute passed the way we did, we had to go ahead and, and accept that terminology of custody of the embryo. Interesting. Yeah. And the Virginia statute already has some some interesting kind of quirks that are different from other states. So am I right in, in saying that compensation is not allowed, but Correct. living expense reimbursement is? Correct. Yeah. So okay. our, our statute is really wonky. It's really hard <laughs> to read. Um, people look at it and they think that our statute allows for a pre-birth order um, because the first part of it talks about a court approval process prior to the birth. It's not a pre-birth order. It's, um, it's basically an order you get before you do any embryo transfer. And, and I've done it uh, the, the court order route maybe five times um, over 30 years. Because uh, it's supposed to be really uh, burdensome and expensive. Is that- you have to do a home study on your carrier, a home study on the intended parents. You have to have a guardian ad litem for your embryos that aren't even created yet in many cases. <laughs> I mean, and, then, you know, and then you go before the court and he blesses wow. your contract. And so the court order is literally... This I I ordain this contract to be blessed, wow. you know. <laughs> so, and then you do the embryo transfer procedure, and then after the birth, you go back to the court within seven days, and then the court reblesses the contract, and then you go to our Department of Vital Records and get your birth certificate. And then if you, it's the second way of doing it in Virginia, which is the way we do it ninety nine point nine percent of the time, is the non court approved route, 
where you don't have to get court approval, you don't have to have home studies, you don't have a, have a guardian ad litem, you just do the contract, and then after the birth, you go directly to our Department of Vital Records and get your birth certificate. Oh, not even to court at all? There's no court at all. Um, so it's a it's a very wonky statute, and the other thing that's very wonky about it oh, is wow. the, the living expense thing. So, yes, uh, we can't pay a fee or bonus or compensation or lost wages, but the carrier can get uh, any medical expenses and any ancillary expenses, including uh, reasonable household living expenses. So we basically have the carrier fill out a monthly expense sheet showing what her total monthly expenses are. Um, and so she might have total monthly expenses of $6,000. Um, and so uh, she might get a $2,000 allowance um, or a $2,500 allowance per month over 10 months. So you, you generally get to the same numbers that carriers get in most states. When you call it compensation, it's still right. similar. Right. You just, it's, it's defined differently. Right. It's characterized differently. So we just call everything as a reasonable uh, household uh, expense or household allowance. Uh, for the carrier, you know, and they can still get the childcare and the housekeeping and the maternity clothes because those are all reasonable ancillary expenses associated with the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So do you consider Virginia pretty surrogacy friendly, even though the statute might not look it? I do. Um, you know, it's the one thing that we weren't able to fix with the changes to the statute going into effect July 1 is that it still doesn't, our statute still doesn't provide for a court order, which, you know, LGBT protocol, if you look at um, National Center for Lesbian Rights, if you look at Family Equality Council, you're the whole, uh, belonging to the LGBT bar, um, you know, the the standard, the gold standard is for all of your gay families, don't rely on a birth certificate alone, get a court order. Right. So even though our statute will now allow for uh, gay families to get the birth certificate, I'm still going to be using the Parentage Act to get them a court order. Um, and we basically charge the same price for that. But still, if if it's a gay couple like Rick and Jay using a donor embryo, um, we still don't have a mechanism in Virginia for them to get a court order um, because our statute only provides for them getting a birth certificate. That That is the, the assisted reproductive technology statute. We, it's called the Status of Children of Assisted Conception statute in Virginia. That only allows for them to get a birth certificate and so we still have no recourse for them to get a court order in Virginia, except for doing the adoption procedure. Oh, frustrating. So yeah. that's, that's what you're doing for LGBT couples is doing adoption proceedings? Um, if they are not genetically related to the child, if, if they only, if, if they use a donor embryo, um, I'm at least telling them, look at to secure your legal parentage, you know, you're only, you're only going to be able to get a birth certificate in Virginia. Um, now I've done. I've gotten for folks that have gotten pre-birth orders that are not genetically related to the child from other states. We can get them domesticated mm. and given full faith and credit in Virginia. Yeah, that's nice. So yeah, so Virginia's it, it's surrogacy friendly uh, okay. unless you're a gay couple using donor embryo because you you can't get the court order. You can only get the birth certificate. Right. So, uh, no. Well. At so, least that, yeah. at least, I mean, congrats on some progress and for right, right. even if there are some, you know, some parts where it still could be better. Every little step yeah, helps. Right? I, told, Definitely. Yeah, right. I told Delegate Sullivan, I'd rather just trash our entire statute <laughs> and then adopt, you know, one of the uniform acts that are out there. 
And they're like, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's harder. <laughs> a long time coming. Right. right. Uh, so speaking of all the millions of frozen cryopreserved embryos, so you are involved in a big way in something kind of catastrophic and terrible that happened, but dealing with the legal aftermath. Do you want to tell us about the Cleveland situation? Cleveland yes. Clinic. Yeah. So um, basically the Cleveland Clinic lost uh, last year about 4,000 eggs and embryos um, when their cryopreservation tank failed. Um, and it's pretty clear that it was human failure that they did not uh, put the right backup systems in place. I mean, they, somebody didn't follow the manual, actually. Yeah, you know? and it's not like the, um, that there'd been, like, the alarm had been going off a lot. I mean, I, uh, I confused this one yeah, in the San Francisco yes. one because there, there was a catastrophic failure in San Francisco the exact same day that lost right. thousands of eggs and embryos. But my understanding was like the, the alarms were faulty and it kept going off and it wasn't true, you know, so they just turned it off and something to that extent where they weren't properly monitoring anymore. Yes, that, no, that is absolutely correct. Basically they, um, they had warnings um, that this was going to happen um, and ignored the warnings. Um, so, you know, unlike an act of God, um, you know, a tornado that comes through or something this was clearly negligence on the part of the clinic. Um, and so now you have all of these families that had either their eggs or their embryos in storage that, um, you know, they've, they've all gotten lawyers. And so I'm working with one of the lead law firms, Elk and Elk out of Cleveland um, to try to quantify this loss. Um, because so hard. <laughs> I, wanna, so hard I really want to hear how you, right. how you do that. So, um, well, and so basically the first thing I did was I kind of put together an overall summary of the, um, of the general losses because you have, you have individual situations, but what I tried to do is I tried to put together, um, okay, if you have just lost eggs, okay, this is one single female patient who has lost her eggs. Okay, well, if she... If she hasn't aged out, if her age, or she hasn't gone, you know, had cancer and gone through uh, uh, treatments where she no longer is able to have viable eggs, so if she, if she still has viable eggs, that's kind of the easiest thing because she can go back through the retrieval process. Um, now, she's lost all the costs that went into the original retrieval process. She also has, um, she also has to go through the whole, you know, shooting yourself with hormones and, and, and yeah, feeling crazy. Exactly. And go through it again. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you have the original cost of her going through the process, losing time from work, uh, not just for the procedures, but for any adverse effects from the medications and the injections. You've got her, you know, her original travel costs to her medical providers and to the pharmacy or the mailing costs if she's got... Um, you know, the packets mailed from a, a mail pharmacy, uh, a pharmacy where you can mail, you know, re receive your things by mail. Um, you've got the prior cost of the actual retrieval procedure, the prior egg storage costs. Um, so those were yeah. the easiest to quantify because- There's numbers. Had, you have numbers. numbers. You had numbers, yeah. right. Yeah, and so you have the actual former numbers that you can show. You can get her lost wage um, documents. Um, you can get the time she's lost from work. And so the past damages were the easiest thing to show. But then we could use the past damages to show what the future damages would be. So let's say she had gone through that retrieval process uh, twice before. Um, well, then 
you know, we could take that, or let's just say she'd gone through the retrieval process once before. So we could take that whole package and say, well, if she's going to have to go through the retrieval process again, it's going to cost at least that. Um, it's going to cost her the time from work. It's going to cost her the medications, the travel cost, et cetera. And um, is there some calculation with her being older, which reduces the chance of success? I mean, that's when, and that's that's assuming that she can right, go through it again. Right. And as I said, right. there's no future guarantee. So that's one of yeah. the intangible costs because she might have, if she's older, um, she might have um, uh, more adverse uh, reactions, more lost time from work. The quality and the viability of the of the eggs now that she's older may not be the same as before. Um, the number of eggs retrieved might not be the same as before. She might not have any retrieved. She might have to go through that process again. So um, you've got all those intangible costs um, that we really couldn't put a number on. So whenever, because I do personal injury law, whenever you're looking at damages in a case, you have what we call the special or quantifiable damages that you can put the dollars on. And then you have what we call the general damages, where you, which are those intangible costs where you really, that's where you have to put it in front of a jury and say, okay, what's the cost of, of the unknown? You know, what's right. the cost of, and it, of, uh, it just feels like with these, there's got to be so many of those. So for the scenario where she's went through cancer, she went to cancer treatment afterwards and they know there's no viable eggs or no ability to make embryos genetically, how did you right. looking at that and how do you value her having a genetic child? So again, you have the past damages, which are easy to quantify um, that we just talked about. But now you have the future damages and here she has to decide, um, how do I feel about using donor egg now that I can't use my own and I can't have my own genetic child um, or would I rather just adopt? So I actually put together all of the uh, costs for doing an adoption as, as one option. Yeah. And actually just for those people who are not sure where they're going in terms of building their family, how do those numbers play out? Adoption versus egg donation? I'm curious. Well, if you look at the cost of retrieving donor eggs, um, all in, you're probably looking at about 20 to $25,000. Um, if this is not banked egg, Banked egg is actually less because it's already been retrieved. It's already in the bank. It's already cryopreserved, so to speak. It's in storage. You know, it's it's um, it's in inventory. And um, does that include combining it with sperm and going through the embryo transfer process and the care until you're released to your OB, or is that just no, the egg donation? This is just the egg donation. Ooh. So this. So when <laughs> okay. I so when I broke it down, I had to basically say, egg. okay, this yeah. is just for the person that has lost their eggs, yeah, okay, right. um, because they would have incurred the cost later of creating the embryos anyway. Um, now, for the folks that have lost their embryos, it's kind of a different analysis. But so now we're talking about the woman who's lost her eggs and she and she can't she can't produce anymore. Right. Yeah. She's you know, she's over over she 40 or whatever or age yeah. that, yeah. you know, her eggs are no longer viable and uh, or she's gone through cancer. And so she. She can't produce any more eggs. We can't retrieve any from her. So now she's on kind of this crossroads of, do I want to go down the adoption path um, or do I want to uh, use donor egg? And if I want to use donor egg, do I want to use banked egg that's already in inventory, which generally runs anywhere from about, uh, oh, generally 
Oh, it can run anywhere from about $8,000 for the minimum of one egg up to $20,000 for more than one. And you've got regional variations. Um, you've got trying to get pricing is from these clinics. It's really crazy because yes. some have, <laughs> I've tried. Some have these, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some have this, this bulk pricing that they use, you know, it's almost like buy one, get two free. Um, some you know, have these like, weird wow. like quasi guarantee <laughs> programs, but they, right. they have like restrictions right. on the guarantees yeah. and yeah. Yes. And so uh, trying to get straight pricing is really difficult. And the other thing I run into as an expert is that in personal injury cases, um, anything that is a medical bill you have to show is reasonable um, for that area. Um, so really, in order to sign off on some of the pricing, um, and it, I almost am kind of operating like a life care planner would be saying, these are all the things you need, and these are the legal costs um, that need to be added. Um, so as part of the, the using donor egg, whether it's banked egg or whether it, they're eggs to be retrieved from a live donor, you know, you have to incorporate in um, the legal costs as well. So I can attest (sighs) to the legal costs, but then when it comes to the actual reasonableness Mm -hmm. of the medical bills, you still have to kind of have a local fertility clinic person say, yes, those are reasonable for this particular region, this particular area. Well, and even, even at the regional no, clinic, it is not necessarily unreasonable that the donor might be from outside of the local area and right. then have to do things like travel. So right. then you're adding the even a few, yeah. you know, a few thousand dollars yeah. more for travel. Right. So when you're looking at retrieving donor eggs, you're looking at the cost to the, to the egg donor program, the egg donor fee that she gets, which is normally um, about five to 8,000 that she gets. You've got the medical screening of her, including the evaluation of her egg quality, um, her blood work to make sure, you know, there's, she's not got HPV, HIV, any contagious diseases. You've got the, psycholo- the psychological screening and mental health counseling for her um, as required by the, you know, ASRM, American Society for Reproductive Medicine guidelines. You've got the legal cost of the egg donation agreement. You've got the medication costs and injection costs for her as the donor, You've got her lost time from work for the medical screenings, the adverse effects from medications and injections and for the actual retrieval. You've got the travel costs if she's not a local donor. Um, and you've got the mailing costs of any of the medications, the actual cost of the storage of the retrieval procedure, and then you've got the storage cost of the eggs. And so you're really looking at an absolute minimum of twenty to twenty five thousand and on up from that. Yeah. Um, so how does that compare to adoption? So for adoption, um, basically, if you're going international, you're looking at about forty to fifty thousand. If you're looking at a domestic adoption with an agency, you're looking at about twenty-five to forty thousand, and we're starting to see those numbers creep up to forty to forty-five thousand because oh, we're domestic. So domestic, so yeah, similar to international, right? Right, and then a domestic private or parental placement where they don't go through an agency is actually a little less. Um, it's about twenty to twenty-five thousand, but then that requires a lot of footwork on the parents' part to network and you know try to find that placing parent without going through an agency. So then you kind of have to incorporate lost time from work, et cetera, to some of those costs as well. And these are the tangible costs, not the cost of getting to experience a pregnancy or having your spouse be related to the, to your child, for example. Right. right. Or the angst of how long, you know, especially, I mean, adoption versus, you know, egg donation and carrying also have different time costs as well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, 
it depends on each situation, and that's where we have. To, that's where I um, I did kind of a general outline of general scenarios, but then you get into specific scenarios for each client, which you know, which include the woman that lost her eggs. Can she still carry or not carry? You know, was she, and so um, that's a factor. And then you've got um, all these intangible factors, including what value do you put on not being able to have your own genetic child? Right. I feel like that's a big, the big one, the big question. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you personally have feelings about yeah. what that should be? Well, having my own genetic twins, um, you know, for me, I, I just can't imagine a world without having my boys that are genetically related to me. Um, other people, you know, people have different mindsets. Um, some people come around to the concept of adoption and, you know, we see lots of kids that are not genetically related to their parents that, um, you know, the, the, there's a really tight family connection there and it doesn't matter. Um, but for other people, it's really important that they're able to procreate their own genetic offspring carry on the family line. And then you get, um, you know, you, you get the story of the, the, the poor guy that had the ski accident out in Colorado, who was a part of an Asian family. And oh, no, not Colorado. Carrying, that's West Point. That was, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, you're right, you're right. Yeah. West Point case. I'm getting confused. Thank you, Ellen. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, that was an Asian family and carrying on the, the family line through their son, you know, that was from a heritage, from a cultural perspective, incredibly important. Right. And I, I find it interesting, even just on I Muslim, like lawyer, mother, or whatever, lawyer Facebook pages where they talked about that case. And so many people just feel kind of um, not happy, like it, this like uh, feeling against that. But at the other side, a lot of people felt, you know, it's amazing the dichotomy where other people felt very strongly like, no, I, if I, I was that grandparent, I would do the same. And you know, it's very, it's fascinating to see how varied and strong the reaction was to that kind of case of taking the genetics of someone who had passed and planning right. to ha conceive a child with that, with those yeah. genetics. Yeah. So that was actually a New York judge that ruled that the parents could have the sperm harvested from his body. And then ruled um, that they could use it. There was a second, right. a second hearing. Uh, right. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, you think about that because uh, Susan Crocken, who's in the Academy as well, she and I had a case where um, the parents had lost um, their son to cancer and I uh, represented uh, his estate and his mom in getting, um, he had, before he got in for the cancer treatment, he had several vials of sperm um, preserved, which is kind of the, it's a, that's the standard protocol. And they didn't expect him to die from the cancer treatment. It, it wasn't something that they, um, expected that. And so anyway, he passed and the mom, fought, we fought to get, uh, to allow her to get the sperm from the fertility clinic and the girlfriend of the son who passed, you know, originally she was going to carry his child, but then she moved on. Um, but using, you know, the, you think about the way that they wanted to grieve the loss of their son was to create their grandchild from the son's sperm. And you think about that, and Susan and I, you know, we really felt strongly about getting these folks into some some counseling, some, you know, to grieve, to properly grieve, to really think about 
the, the repercussions of that um, because then this mom wanted to find a gestational carrier uh, with donor egg that would use you know the deceased son's sperm and then they would create essentially they're trying to almost create a child to replace the child they've lost yeah did the counseling or time change her change their perspective it did it did yeah yeah they decided not to go that route so you know there is a lot of controversy around around this issue um and is that a proper way to grieve you know (laughs) so in these cases but anyway getting back to the um the cleveland clinic cases um you know at, at least in these, in the Cleveland Clinic cases, the basically everything thawed out, so it couldn't be used. Eggs couldn't be used, embryos couldn't be used. Um, before we got on the call, I mentioned I had a case where in Virginia, where my clients lost their embryos, and uh, the clinic couldn't tell us what happened to them. So that we, even when we were talking, I had to laugh that you said they lo- they lost the embryos, and I thought, oh, okay, they they thawed out too. But no, they like literally they lost them. Like they could not track them down. Like they don't know where they went. Like they don't oh, know wow. if they were destroyed. They don't know if they got implanted into oh. somebody and carried. Oh wow! You know, so my clients didn't they. They said we won't know. Like if we see somebody in a grocery store that looks exactly like our other two kids. Right. Always kind of looking for that. Right. And, you know, um, both of you know from working in this field that a lot of folks don't do genetic testing, you know, after their child is born and they use a gestational carrier to ensure that it's actually their genetic child and there hasn't been a lab mix up, you know? Right. Right. No. Yeah. So in in that case, we not only had the loss of the embryos and the cost of what it was going to cost to uh, create new ones or to purchase new ones. But the um, but tangible fear of running into your major emotional child being raised by someone else against your wishes. Right. Well, also this other potential poor child in and other family, if that if that did actually happen, then in 18, 20 years, when that child takes a you know 23 and me test and is like, hey, mom and dad, these other people over here, who, who are right. they? Right. <laughs> and they probably exactly. don't know. They're like, we, we had no idea. Right. We have no idea. Right. Huh? Because if the kid came out and looked close enough to what they expected the kid to look like, they're not going to do genetic testing to to back it up. They're just going to assume that the clinic got it right and transferred the right embryo, you know? So, so, um, so how did your case play out? Um, well, we ended up settling for a confidential amount. Um, in that case, they had a liquidated damage provision in their fertility uh, clinic storage agreement for the embryos that if they lost any embryos, they would only pay $400 each. <laughs> and so, yeah, I feel like, oh, it really was. So we challenged that and said, that's an unenforceable liquidated damage provision. Uh, we looked at all the liquidated damage law in Virginia and it completely supported the fact that, that that was way out of line with what the actual value of the embryos was because just to create those embryos, just like with the Cleveland Clinic case, um, you, ha- you had to look at all of the costs that will go into the creation of an embryo. You've got the egg retrieval that we just talked about, all of those costs. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's, it's not as difficult to retrieve the sperm. <laughs> from the guy. Right, right, you know, right. It's a little bit easier, you know, maybe just a, a sexy magazine there. Um, oh, my God. I recently, and, yeah. saw, I recently <laughs> saw some some news clip about these machines in Japan or something that do the retrieval. <laughs> oh, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you have the clinic costs to form the embryos um, and, you know, grow them to the right size. 
and then you have the cost of the uh, of, of storing the embryo as well, um, and then you've got the transfer costs as well uh, with regard to that embryo. So, well, and assuming assuming they added some extra add-ons, things like PGS testing or um, what is it now, PGTA? Am I using the right terms now? Yes, um, yes. <laughs> you know, you have to get back to the same, make them whole back to the same level that they were too. So all of those things add huge extra expenses if they had chosen to do so the first right, time. Right. Right. So again, so when we were looking at just like when we were looking at the replacement of the eggs with the replacement of the embryos, we could look at past costs. You know, what were the past costs to create those embryos? Um, and we could use those costs as a baseline for what is going to be the cost to create the new embryos. But again, then you have this issue of could, at this point, the intended mother in that situation, are you still able to retrieve eggs from her now or not? Um, so you so you had to come to that same crossroads for that family and say, are you going to use donor egg and is it going to be banked egg or is it going to be egg from a, you know, a donor that you still need to retrieve from, or you're at this crossroads where you're not going to be able, the woman at least may not be able to have her, or is it could be the, the, the guy, it could be that he went through cancer treatment and we can no longer retrieve his sperm. And so now that couple is, is at the crossroads too, where are we going to just turn to adoption instead? And again, you have that same intangible, which is what, is the value of not being able to have your own child that's genetically connected to you. Um, so uh, then, you know, we basically um, get to all of these unknowns as well, which we had in the same, in the egg scenario, which is if you can retrieve eggs from the mom, you know, now that she's older, are they going to be as viable and therefore, are the embryos going to be as viable? Um, are the are you going to be able to retrieve eggs from her, or are you going to have to turn to donor egg anyway? Um, and then, you know, even when we think about the costs of um, of, of sperm, uh, if they had to turn to using donor sperm, it, it's not just the cost of the sperm itself, although. Um, you know, if you just purchase anonymous, anonymous sperm from most of these cryobanks, it runs about $220 to $400 per vial. Um, but if they wanted to use an identified sperm donor, now you've got the sperm donor agreement and the legal costs, you've got the payment to the donor, et cetera. So I kind of had to diagram out all the various permeations and scenarios that folks might go down. Um, and then again, you have the storage costs as well. So, uh, very um, easy to put together a lot of the future costs from the past costs that were there. But then again, you had to add on all these intangible factors. Yeah, I really, I really hope that settlement included that, that idea that they could have used their embryos with someone else and provide at least some compensation because that's, that's a concerning, concerning thought. How many individuals or families were affected uh, in Cleveland? I don't know the exact number of families um, because I only know the ones that I've been working with. um, Because, I mean, you have 4,000 lost embryos and eggs, but I don't know how specifically how many families were impacted by that. And and they kind of have this consortium of attorneys and the firm I'm working for, Elk and Elk, is probably, they have 
the most and they're leading up the group, but the attorneys are all kind of working. It's not really a class action, but they're working collectively together. Okay. Each, okay. you know, when you, when you try to certify class action, uh, they have to be similarly enough uh, situated. Um, and here you have uh, folks that have all different types of situations. I would say there's a lot of variables right. that make it not feel so similar. Yeah, no, that's very true. Right. So you have all of those uh, different factors um, to consider. Um, and some of the folks, uh, you know, uh, may decide to use a gestational carrier. Um, in some situations, the infant mother, um, she may not have been able to carry to begin with, but in some, now that you have this added time of having to create new embryos or obtain new embryos, um, in some cases, uh, she's no longer, she's kind of aged out um, or reached a point where she's doesn't qualify medically. So we also had to incorporate all the costs of what's that involved to use a gestational carrier as well as one of the possible scenarios. Which are significant costs. Huge. What, huge. what did your numbers run for that? So um, I'm going to look here and see what the actual total. So my totals were coming to about 62000 to 101000 not including travel and lost wages to the intended parents, um, not including the medical. I was going to say, did that include medical costs? That's the. Yeah. That it did not include the medical costs except for screening. Um, that did not include medications for the carrier or the cost of the embryo transfer procedure, the cost of embryo formation and cryopreservation. So that was just basically um, locating the gestational carrier. Um, all the screening that had to go into that, the, the payments to the gestational carrier, the legal fees, the escrow agency fees, um, the legal fees for the parentage process, um, the screening for the gestational carrier, including investigating the carrier's background, her psych eval, the medical screens, the group counseling. Um, you know, when you add all of those up, it just starts to really, the numbers really start to jump yeah. up there. Yeah. 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 Well, but um, anyway, fascinating um, for these poor families um, to have to go through this process. And then, uh, Ellen, when you and I were down in Dominican Republic at the ABA conference, I thought it was really interesting, the panel of the fertility doctors talking about the, the new tanks, the new technology that is coming out so that it will prevent this from ever happening again, um, where you're not relying upon, um, they're kind of like a self preserving, like self-sustaining tanks um, with the new technology so that um, and they're I forgot. not dependent. He said how long it would, if it was like an apocalyptic, you know, zombie attack, how long they would last. And I forgot how long it was, but it was significant. It was a pretty, it was a number of months. I mean, yeah. it was a pretty significant amount of time. So um, hopefully that will s- stop this right? type of thing from <laughs> happening. Right. But it won't necessarily stop clinics from either um, misplacing or having mix-ups because most people don't realize just how tiny these little embryo straws are, you know, that are, if you think about um, a safety pin and you think about just the the, the size of the, the a needle, you know, and you're labeling these little teeny tiny straws right. <laughs> um, and, right. and trying to keep track of them. Uh, we're, we're talking extremely small things to kind of keep track of um, and make sure don't get mixed up or don't get lost um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so 
Anyway, hopefully as technology. Well, hopefully they're, they're getting better. So that's becoming less likely, hopefully, knock on wood. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but it, it's, uh, it creates a lot of issues for um, these poor families. And um, the other thing that uh, I always tell folks, too, is, you know, you, you want to make sure that um, whatever clinic you're using, that they have a really good reputation, they're insured, you know, that you're, you're protected. Because we saw the same thing in the adoption world when we recently saw an adoption agency go bankrupt, um, you know, is, is, to, is to really vet that clinic ahead of time and make sure that um, they're heavily insured, they've got a great reputation, um, those sorts of things. But the Cleveland Clinic had an, an excellent reputation in the community. So um, I don't know how folks could have, uh, they wouldn't have been able to predict that that was going to happen. Yeah. And that's almost more frustrating. So even things like we, we've talked to, we've done interviews about the Teresa Erickson case and they talk about how, you know, she was well known and well respected and so prominent. And there's no, there was none of those red flags that people would have thought, oh, you know, this is a shady attorney or this is a shady organization. Right. Right. And that's, you know, we don't have, um, a lot of regulatory control. There's other than the American Society for Reproductive Medicine (ASRM) guidelines. Um, there's not a lot of uniformity and uh, regularity and what's required and what's not required. Um, so, I mean, thank goodness for ASRM. And uh, just recently, in my own area, the Richmond fertility doctors were not following ASRM guidelines, but they just merged with Shady Grove, which does. And I was so <laughs> relieved because, because you know, um, it, they people would come to me and they would say, well, do we have to have a psych screening of our carrier? Uh, yeah. And I'd be like, well, well, yes. And they'd be like, well, our local doctor's saying we don't. And I'm oh. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Under the ABA Model Act and the ASRM guidelines, you do, and you'd be like dumb not to. <laughs> right, <you know>? oh. <laughs> and, yeah. and I know Shady Grove yeah. requires yeah. that. Believe yeah. me, yeah. Exactly. And so that's the best thing that's <laughs> happened is the merger. Um, so now all my local guys uh, have to are, are following ASRM guidelines, and I'm so relieved because we see so many less mishaps occur when you're following some sort of you know guidelines that are in place for a, re- for a reason, you know, absolutely. Well, I am thankful for that. And I am incredibly thankful for you and all your expertise in helping families and for taking the time to, to join us and share this with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I think this is a great program and uh, Ellen and Jen, uh, you're doing great Thanks. work. So thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks to Colleen for joining us. Such a privilege and an honor that she would take the time out of her incredibly busy schedule. Um, she's absolutely she's a hero of mine. That she is just so so well there, so experienced, so many amazing, incredible cases that she's made a difference on. So I I really appreciate it. And you know, I don't, did we mention already that she does she teaches aerobics in her spare time? No, I didn't know that even. <laughs> wow, wow. So I, you know, I appreciate that her taking this the time to do this with us. Yeah, no, it's really especially because she does so much work on such heartbreaking things like these are things that really people are really hurting in the middle of all this so the the fact that she can do this with such grace and compassion and and help people through it is really really incredible 
So, and we always appreciate everyone out there's grace and compassion as we are dealing with things like summer break and having kids home. So please and thank you for your understanding as we have noise and things like that. Uh, <laughs> as yeah. we are under construction <laughs> at all times, right? Because we have children at home. Um, but do please feel free, reach out to us at our on our phone hotline, 303-997-1903. And as always as we as we sign off for the week a huge thank you to chris at work at bird studios lexi at heartfire creative amanda in our office as well as ashley a new addition to our team who has done incredible things to to make us just look fantastic so and we, tyler we who's been and helping tyler. with the description too yes tyler i'm sorry i forgot to See, it's a huge tyler. team that helps tyler us. i'm so sorry tyler i didn't mean to forget you so no we are we we have a huge support team around us and we really appreciate them so thank you all so much we'll talk to you next week 